fabulous to be here. Fabulous to see some old friends that I haven't seen for... Um, I was trying to think, Dane and Gemma, and I'm thinking, I saw Dane uh, in the dentist section of Griffith University one day that, you know, you don't want to remember those occasions. And then I think the last time was probably wandering down West End one night and here's Dane and Gemma walking the other way and Gemma was pregnant with number two or three or something. Or one or something. Anyway, many years ago. So fabulous to see them. And Becky, lovely to see you again too. And of course, more than awesome to see all of you guys again. Um, and to journey together in the kingdom of God and to share that share uh, experiences of God in our lives and in the lives that we touch is a fantastic thing. Um, today I'm going to talk about Jeroboam and Jeroboam was a pretty interesting character and pretty interesting point in history. Um, but in talking about Jeroboam, I want to pull out a couple of important elements in that life and in that circumstance and help you see what is important today. From God's point of view, what is important in our lives today and in what we do today? Um, I'm going to do the same style as I did last time, however many weeks ago, and that is, next slide, yeah. We're going to do a think, a share, and a prayer. So the think part is where I toss out some ideas and some questions, and you all give me the feedback of what you know, so I'm making your turn to think. All right, I apologise, I know, sermons, church, thinking, not the normal. <laughs> I apologise. But uh, apparently, it's the, one of the better ways to learn is to make you think. Um, and so as we share this information and, and understanding and knowledge, um, it's a good refiller, um, reminder, um, and connector to um, what is in God's Word rather than what we think is in God's Word. And it's often important to say what we think about something just to find out it's wrong and toss it out. And so that's why I encourage you, even if what you might say, you're not quite sure, but it's what you think, it's important that you say it because that's how you get corrected. The worst thing you can do in an, in an exam is walk in and do and sit an exam and then you are writing the answer to question 16 and you go, oh, now is it A or B? Now, before you started studying that subject, you always thought it was B, whatever that answer might be. Chairs are always red. Um, but during the course of that engineering study, you found out that sometimes chairs are blue. And so when you get to the exam, if you've never actually articulated and said, chairs are always red and other people or the lecturers say, no, our experience is that chairs can sometimes be blue. When you get to that exam point, you go, oh, I remember that chairs were always red, but then someone said they can be blue, but I'm not sure. I think it's still all red, right? So that's the important thing about why you say stuff, um, because correcting is as important as learning, right? 
So then sharing, I'm going to share some of my thoughts about Jeroboam and God's impact there. And then at the end, I want you to pair together and do some praying. Okay? All happy with that? Okay, great. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we come to your word with hearts that are open and minds that are wishing to be cleared of the clutter so that we may hear you speak to us, you reveal your word to us, and you open our hearts to you. Amen. So, thinking part now. And I don't want to turn around to look at the slides every time because I just, I'll assume you're up to it and we'll be awesome. So, thinking, who was Jeroboam? This is your turn. Tell me. Fantastic. Yes, Mark. Aha. First, no, no, hold that thought. First king of Israel. I want someone else to explain what Andrew means, first king of Israel, because that doesn't sound right, does it? First king of the divided king of Israel, or what was known as the northern kingdoms. All right, the northern kingdoms. How many tribes are in the northern kingdoms? Ten. Ten. Okay, what else can someone else tell me about Jeroboam? He was the son of Nebat. Yes, very good. He is the son of Nebat. Of course, everyone knows that, don't you all? Well, you do now. <laughs> yeah, no cheat. Hey, look, come on. Sorry, this is the rules. No cheating. No looking up Bibles and going, oh, I, can, I know that's all in 1 Kings 12 and 11 and 13 and it's over in 1 Chronicles 16. And No, come on. He was not a son of Solomon. He was not a son of Solomon, Yes. Yeah, Rehoboam was his, if you like, competitor, and he was the son of Solomon. Yep. Jeroboam was Solomon's minister for forced labor. That's right. Jeroboam was the minister for forced, he was the works foreman, right? The chain gang, whatever you might like to call it. Yep. Come on, this side, there's more answers over here, but... Was he God honoring? Now we're talking about Jeroboam. You're thinking of Rehoboam. But there's, there's, yeah, they're all bombs. There's some similarities in there. All right. Anything else? Yes, Andrew. A prophet came to him. That's right. And when, so, so what, you're in a minute, and when was that? That was prior to the death of Solomon, I think. Aha, important. So prior to the death of Solomon, a hyger, a prophet, came to Jeroboam and said, if you do what I command you, you will be king of these ten tribes. And he actually did something. He took off his cloak and he tore it up into twelve pieces and he gave ten pieces to Jeroboam. Hmm. Isn't that interesting that God actually has something physical done that you, you know, I can just imagine Jeroboam, he's got 10 pieces of this cloak and he takes away. Would he just sort of like, you know, oh yeah, 10 bits of old rag, toss them in the bin? Or would you sort of go, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to like look after this. And just so in 50 years time, I can say, hey God, you Ted, and here's my 10 bits of cloth and where is this kingdom I was going to be king of? You know, it's all like, I'll hang on to this. Yes, Nadine. 
places of worship up north where people wouldn't go to Jerusalem. Oh, yes. Yes, important point. There was two places, Bethel and Dan, that um, Jeroboam set up. And he made something in particular there. Two calves, two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel, so that people in the northern kingdoms wouldn't go to Jerusalem to the temple to worship because he thought, oh, then they might like to go back to Rehoboam and be with the other king. So we're not going to do that. Yep. Okay, we've had a good bit of a story about Jeroboam. Why do you think Jeroboam's in the Bible? Piece of history? Or what? Why is he in the Bible? The Lord told David that we would always have somebody on the throne. Yes. Yeah, that was Rehoboam was the descendant. Jeroboam was the competitor. So why is Jeroboam in the Bible? Maybe let's ask a broader question. Why? Oh, sorry, Rick. Uh, I was thinking that Solomon, because of his sin, his kingdom would be divided. Yep. But not in his time. So part of that ripping away mm. uh, was given to Jeroboam. Mm. A broader question, maybe. Why is anything in the Bible? Say it louder. For instruction. For who? For us. Aha! Yeah. For instruction for us. The story of Jeroboam is in the Bible, not just as a piece of you know, quirky history, but it's for us. So we've talked about what his story is. We've talked about why he's in the Bible. Um... Let's talk about, as they say, let's not mention the war, let's go the divorce. No, next slide, click twice. Again, the divorce. Dun, dun. The divorce. So we've sort of partly mentioned it here. So Rehoboam, Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king and he talks to his minions and the wise men say, oh, go easy on the people. Solomon's been hard, terrible taskmaster. And the young guys go, ah, oh, drive them harder. You know, we can get more money out of them yet. And so he chooses that. And 10 tribes go, yeah, no, that's not for us. We're going to separate away and become a different kingdom. And so the divorce within the nation of Israel occurs and we've got the tribe of Judah and the northern kingdom. And technically it's Judah and Benjamin, but you know, it gets referred to then as Judah and the northern kingdoms and they become two parts. And even to the point where when it happens, Rehoboam says, let's go fight Jeroboam and that other mob. So almost instantaneously, they've become enemies. Pretty normal divorce. Isn't it? I mean, is that what you see today in divorce? It's sort of like, you know, oh, no, we're not going to be with you anymore. We're going to go over here and it's going to... And it's like, right. I don't care how much money this costs us. We're getting it. Sad world, isn't it? But here we are reflecting and doing the same Two and a half thousand years later. So let's talk about 
before the divorce. Click. So before the divorce, we've talked a bit about, but there's one thing that we haven't mentioned. God said something to Solomon. And God said to Solomon, if you and your sons stay with me and believe in me and follow my commandments, then you will have this throne forever. But if you do not, I will take it from you. Now, do you think Jeroboam knew that? Given he was works supervisor, foreman, picked by Solomon, he probably did. And what was the message that Abijah, the prophet, said to Jeroboam when he handed him the ten pieces of cloth? Almost exactly the same. If you keep my commands, if you abide by me, if you follow my word, then you and your nation, your children will have this kingdom forever. That's before the divorce. What about after the divorce? Did Jeroboam listen? Heck no. And even though he's seen Solomon his family fail and God take his kingdom away, for Jeroboam, he does the same. Exactly the same. And you sort of sit there and you go, oh, so that's what happened. Um, why, Why didn't he learn? And I wonder why we don't learn. How many times we repeat the same thing over and over and go, oh, I know God it failed last time, but can it just work this time? Can you just help me out here? Jeroboam abandoned the temples, and the significance of Jeroboam is not really articulated, but the reason I say that I think Jeroboam knew what God had said to Solomon was that Jeroboam was in Egypt because he disappeared to Egypt because Solomon, like... Yeah, Solomon wanted to kill him for all sorts of interesting reasons. And he came back from Egypt when he heard that Solomon died. And then it says that Jeroboam and the people went to Solomon. So he was automatically sort of included as, you know, well, you're the de facto leader. But it doesn't really say that. But when you read the stories, it's sort of like, oh, okay. So, so somehow Jeroboam is sort of like, come back and automatically leader in the fold. We're taking this place forward now. And then they moved to Shechem and made Jeroboam king. So in this whole thing, the lessons before the divorce, the divorce, and then the lessons after the divorce, they're all the same. They're all because men saying, God, you can say whatever you like and you can keep your side of the bargain I'm not going to keep my side of the bargain. And maybe they didn't think the consequences would occur. Is that sort of normal? Is that how you think it should be? That if I see evidence here of God saying, do this, uh, I promise, no, he really says, I promise this, you do this, 
and keep doing that and I'll do this. Otherwise, this is going to happen. And they all go, okay, God, I'll take the promise. Yep, thank you. I'm king now uh, and I promise to do what you say. Uh, but oh, it's all much, a whole lot more fun doing this here. And well, given that all that God said came true, why wouldn't God deliver on what he said will happen if you don't do what I ask? I mean, isn't that pretty silly to think that if God is so great that he can make all of this occur as promised, why wouldn't he deliver on that? Is it because we think God's just a nice guy? You know, he, he would never do anything harsh. Let's um, talk about that. Oops, so the next slide. God strikes men down. But why? Let's look at three that happened. So, a man of God, as Andrew talked about, this man of God, or Ahijah, came and promised Jeroboam and gave him ten pieces. Now, after that, when Jeroboam was king, in 1 Kings 13, it says, A man of God came to Jeroboam and said... And I'm just going to read you a little bit if I can just find it here. He came and basically pointed at the altar and said, basically, the altar's going to split and break. And it did. And the king responded to the prophet and says, Seek the favour of the Lord your God and pray for me so that my hand will be restored. Because the king had pointed at this man of God basically to say to kill him, and his arm withered immediately. So the prophet sought the Lord's favour and the king's hand was restored as it was first. And the king said to the prophet, come home with me and have something to eat so that I may give you a gift. But the prophet said to the king, even if you were to give me half of your possessions, I would not go with you. I am not allowed to eat food or drink water in this place. For this is how I was commanded in the Lord's message. Eat no food, drink no water, do not return by the way, way you came. God gave this man of God some clear instructions. And so the man of God then says to the king, I'm not going to do it. I've delivered the message. You are warned to do what God says. I'm leaving. And off he went. And he went by a different way did what God said. The problem is that another old prophet had sent his son to find out what was going on and had heard what was going on. And so the old prophet dude says, mm, yeah, he's not real happy with all of this. So he sends his son, sorry, he goes to this man of God and says, hey, come home with me. Everything's great. You need to take easy on your journey. And the man of God says, no, no, God has said I'm not to eat or drink, etc. And the old prophet says, I, in verse 18, I too am a prophet like you. And an angel has told me in a message from the Lord, bring him back to you, to your home, so that he can eat food and drink water. But he'd lied to him. So the prophet went back with him. He ate food in his house, and he drank water. 
Now, consequently, what happens is that God tells the old prophet then a message and says to the man of God, you've done something that God told you not to do and I lied and I'm sorry. And the man of God leaves and is immediately killed by a lion. And the particular thing God says to this, you will die and not be buried with your family. So he's killed on the road and the lion just stands next to the man of God dying. Sound a bit harsh? Uh It sounds rubbish, but Alan's exactly right. Let's talk about the next one. So Moses. At the end of Moses' life, and he's been cruising around 40 years in the desert with these recalcitrant Jews, and, um, and God says, thanks for all you've done. You're 120 years old, full of vitality, it says but you're to go on this mountain and you're going to die the same as your brother Aaron died back on Mount Hor uh, because you're not allowed to enter the king to the promised land. Now you think about that for a minute. You've sort of lived 40 years in Egypt and lived like a prince and then for a week or two got treated like rubbish and you decided... Uh, Best not for me to be here anymore or get killed. Go and live 40 years in the desert, getting married, looking after some sheep wandering around the desert, trying to eke out a living. And God says, go back to Egypt, put yourself in harm's way, and then I want you to lead my children, lead my nation, my people. And so he does that. And for 40 years, they do all sorts of things in the desert. And on one occasion, and on one occasion, Moses strikes this rock twice in disobedience to what God says. And for that, and that alone, God says, Moses, you're not going to get to the promised land. Does that feel like rubbish? It feels extreme. Let's talk about the next one. And this one to me, Azar, is the most perplexing. So who knows who Azar is? Christine, you're allowed to put your hand up. <laughs> so Azar in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Andrew. That's right. David decided that it's time to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And what did they do? Well, they put it on a bullock tray and dray and had these old bullocks pull it along. Now, how is the Ark, how were they told it is to be transported? It's to be on the rods of particular people, right? The priests are the ones that carry it. Now, as I was doing a good thing, you would think when the ark starts to fall off the dray because something happened, puts his hand out to stop it falling off and God strikes him dead. Done. This one's a little bit different to the other two, isn't it? Because he's not the person who was actually told but he should know. You get the difference? He, God didn't say, you're, you're, you're supposed to carry him on poles, right? I'm telling you. Right? You got that? Okay. Um, no, no. God had told Moses and the priests and the Levites, so it should have then been known 
but it wasn't told directly to him, but he should have known. Do we ever get ourselves in situations where we do things that, well, you sort of know, I haven't actually been told directly, but that's probably what I should do, but we don't do it. We find ways, don't we? Through all time, God has asked his people to obey him, hasn't he? If you start with Adam and Eve and walk through the Bible, God constantly says, obey me. Even through to the New Testament, we've got a couple of verses there. In Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, the reason it's repeated in there is for emphasis. It's like, why do we say Lord, Lord? It's as though we are dare I say this terribly, don't know. I won't say this because you record in podcast, don't you? <laughs> um, but if you were to show unbridled enthusiasm for something, but then not actually practice it. That's what that verse is saying. Why do you show unbridled enthusiasm and don't do what I tell you? You say everything is wonderful, I'm the most magnificent person ever, but you do not do what I tell you. And then John 14, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Obedience. If the principle hasn't changed through time, how are you and I reflecting obedience today? What is it that we do that reflects obedience? Now, one of the things that we do is communion, which is awesome. Another thing we do is baptism. Now, in actual fact, they're pretty easy things to do because they're things, aren't they? But man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And God looks to see if my heart is obedient rather than just my actions. Because we've all been children or have had children or interacted with children where we know that Yes, they're doing what they should be doing. And when we turn the other way, do they keep doing what they should be doing? Not particularly. How do we obey given the society that we live in? And this I want to talk about a little. Society. Society is rapidly moving away from a church-orientated society. If you go back 50 years... It was a much more church-orientated society. If you go back 20 years, it was a much more church-orientated society, even though those of us sort of thinking end of the 1990s, well, was, we would have thought not. But if you think about in the last five years, the impact on our society from a church point of view of same-sex marriage debate, it has moved like a whole shift all of a sudden. And then you add to that the Royal Commission into child abuse in institutions. And it's moved another whole section to the point where um, if anyone in the church says something about it, the media and the community response really is, sorry, you have no authority to say anything about that because... It's been shown in all these inquiries that you have no standing. And so I would make this comment that church has become exiled 
in the society of today. We're almost like the children of Israel exiled to Babylon. Well, us as a church have been exiled from this community almost because our status and our acceptance of authority or even to have a purposeful statement or you know, a real view that is to be considered and, and accepted has almost been dealt away with. And it's not just Christians. The same attitude is towards Muslims. I've got a couple of Muslims that I work with at uni, very good friends, and, and they feel it. They feel it badly. Um, Scientology or Hindus, much the same. You know, if you follow news in Pakistan or in India and you see the great battles almost constantly between Hindus and, and Muslims, um, except for Buddhists. The Dalai Lama who says it's all about peace and love. And that's what the world wants to hear. Because in the madness and the chaos of the world, they want nothing more than peace and love. And if you look at those royal commission and same-sex marriage debate, that's the outcome of what they want. We want peace in our institutions and we want love to be the one thing. And in actual fact, they're not the most important. Obeying God is far more important. Churches, let's talk about churches, not just society. Churches, I think, have moved from believers to belongers. Think about that for a minute. We've moved from being people who say, I believe in God. I believe he rose, Jesus rose again. I believe all this stuff to, uh, I belong to the Presbyterian. I belong to the Anglican. I belong to the, you know, or I'm privately spiritual. Doesn't that sound so much more impressive than I belong to Willowburn? I'm privately spiritual. I know how to make my daughter laugh. That's pretty much where today's religious person is. And if you look at our census data, there's been this quantum shift in the number of people who say no religion or religious of no religion. They say, I'm religious, but I'm not a member of any religion. And that number is rapidly approaching over 50%. It's pretty despondent, isn't it? Jesus commands, though. What does he say we should be? Next slide. <sighs> be the salt of the earth. Be a light on a hill. Hebrews says that Jesus' purpose is to bring many sons to glory. In the early church, in the Council of Jerusalem, when asked what is important, they basically said that you don't put any inhibitors in front of people becoming Christians. You know, and, and it was really about, you know, don't drink the blood of animals and those sorts of things. You know, I can't remember the top the three things. But they were just impediment things. We have to be careful that we don't end up being a church or a community that says, um, we're, we're all here, people. Come and see and talk to us. Come over here. Come in here and um, we'll tell you all about Jesus. Because in actual fact, Jesus said in his command in Matthew 28, he said, go. 
He said, go. Now, I, when some study I did on this verse some time ago, and it says, go and make disciples of all nations. And, and I've thought about that over many years and observed how we send out missionaries, and, and that's a good thing. But there are now about 240, 250 nations in the world. There are currently over 200 nations represented in Australian community. So where do you actually have to go to go to all nations? Across the street. Our own backyard. I mean, an obvious one for Toowoomba has been just the number of refugees that have settled in this city in the last few years. All nations have arrived at your doorstep. While it's still important to go out, um, and I'm, I'm one who would promote funding of nationals in their own nation to be missions. Um, previous church we're in in Rockhampton, we used to fund missionaries in India um, and we paid, we bought 300 push bikes and that doubled their effectiveness. It was sort of like, do you know how much a push bike costs in India? It was like $30 Australian, something ridiculous. And we didn't even cough up 10 grand and we'd bought heaps and heaps of push bikes. And they were like, you know, this is, it costs us $26 a month at that time. And this is 10, 15, 18 years ago. Um, it was costing us under $30 a month to fund an Indian national to be a missionary in India. You know, that's, well, that's not, it's, it's sort of like, you know, Maccas for the family, isn't it? When you connect them together. But Jesus says, go into, make disciples. We've often read it as, go into all nations and make disciples. Where he says, go and make disciples of all nations. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got a prayer I want to read to you. Um, and I just ask for this moment that you just close your eyes as I read it. Go to the next slide, Beck. Let's close our eyes and I'll just read and then I'll leave it up there while you all then have a time to pray. Lord, when you bless, you do so in response to obedience. When you withdraw your blessing, it's always for us a challenging time. May each of us keep you first in all things so that we never have to experience loss of your blessing. Amen. So I want you to think about these three things. What is it that God expects of us? Oh, next slide, sorry. What is it that God expects of us? And thinking about the concept of the church being exiled in our own society, joyful urgency. You are the equipment. You are the equipment in that exiled state. Jesus has a plan for your life and for the life of this church for generations ahead. If you ever go back and read 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 and 1, 2 Samuel 6 and that, you'll always find that Jesus says, 
If you do these things, I will bless you and your children for a thousand generations. If you don't do these things, then it will be on your children for two, a second and a third generation. You see the difference? The penalty is for two or three generations because God doesn't hold out against your children. But if you do what he says, the blessing is there for a thousand generations. See the difference between his, his penalty and his blessing? It's almost like there's no comparison. Why wouldn't I want his blessing? So just spend um, a couple of minutes just with someone next to you, just praying um, about in, in taking those three things. What is it that God expects of us? Um, and then, Rick, I guess back to you. God bless you all.